I think when it comes to the other plans, I'm very much so on a journey back to some of my other interests because before my PhD, I was really, really more interested in looking into secondary metabolites, which so, you know, for people who aren't aware, THC and CBD are secondary metabolites. Those are molecules that the plant makes that are not for reproduction or for growth because things that are for growth or reproduction are primary metabolites and then therefore everything else like so terpenes and cannabinoids, they would be secondary metabolites. And I really wanted to do my PhD on secondary metabolites of cannabis. You're listening to To Be Blunt, the podcast for cannabis marketers, where your host Shada Taravi and her guests are trailblazing the path to marketing, educating, and professionalizing cannabis. Light one up and listen up. Here's your host, Shada Taravi. Hello, 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 and welcome back to the To Be Blunt podcast. I'm your host, Shada Tarabi, cannabis business owner and brand marketer, and I'm so happy that you're here. Thank you so much for tuning into another episode of the podcast. It means the world every time you hit play, and I'm just so glad that I can be a part of your cannabis business journey. Now, while I have your attention, I would love, emphasis on the love, if you would take a few moments, please, to leave a review of the podcast wherever you tune into podcasts, but most specifically on Apple or Spotify, because it helps me get one, feedback, and two, it helps other people browsing for shows to tune into to stop and give this show a consideration. So your words really matter, and I would love if you would share some comments about the podcast with me. So thank you for your listenership again and support of the show. As you know, I've tuned into previous episodes sharing a bit about my own journey, and I just wanted to kind of give you an update. This is going to be my third year of the podcast. Holy shit, in June, I think time is certainly evading me, but wow. And with that, a lot of personal evolutions have been going on as well. Restart, my cannabis brand and dispensary here in Austin turns five this August, which is both exciting, humbling, and shocking. I can't believe we've been doing this for five years, especially as a family brand. And I can't believe I've been self-employed for five years. That's wild. On top of that, I've been navigating some personal health stuff, mainly, and I haven't really gotten into this, but I think that it's important to share. And I've shared in certain circles, but haven't really made an update on the podcast. But Specifically, I had some abnormal cells pop up in my cervix during a recent test late last year. And in order to prevent them from transforming into cancer, doing some research, talking to my doctor, I've elected to make a decision that I would no longer be inhaling or smoking cannabis. That was in November, and initially I took a break from all things cannabis as I waited for more tests to come back. I'm navigating some other health things that I don't have 100% clarity on, and transparently I wanted a clean slate internally, so no alcohol, no cannabis, no medication, etc. And ultimately, through that journey, I decided to add cannabis back in about a month ago now at this point via ingestible. So edibles and sublingual oils and topicals as well. I deal with a significant amount of chronic pain from my 2015 car accident. And when I was doing my detox cleanse, my intake of over-the-counter, you know, Motrin, Advil, etc. spiked to help me manage that pain. So it just didn't make sense to trade one pill for a plant, concluding that I'd rather be on the plant than any pills. So It was a good experience though, to just let my body get back to some sort of neutrality. I was really concerned I wouldn't be able to sleep without cannabis since I've also been using it as a sleep aid since my pain gets pretty bad while I'm trying to fall asleep or stay asleep. And shockingly, I was able to get some decent and restful nights sleep without cannabis. So that was cool to just see and challenge my body. But like I said, I'm back baby. And it feels really good to have a healthy relationship with cannabis. I will say it's taking me some time to get used to how to plan to eat an edible and how to plan how many milligrams to do since I don't want to get too high in certain situations or circumstances 
if I'm just trying to take the edge off or redose myself after I feel the initial edible has worn down compared to being able to smoke and inhale cannabis if I just wanted a quick buzz or effect. So that's been super humbling and it's important for me to share because maybe you two are navigating some health issues and I think we as an industry have a clear obsession with smoking, which I'll just leave at that. I'm not your doctor, you can make your own health decisions, but we have a whole new wave of consumers entering the marketplace who don't wanna smoke for various reasons. And so how do we effectively promote and educate on our products with that information in mind? So enough about my update. If you're dealing with something similar, I hope you know that this is a safe space and we're all trying to navigate our own health and well-being as well as repercussions of long-term cannabis use, right? I think those are fair questions and considerations to be made. So before we get into today's guest, I do want to share a few noteworthy news updates I think you should pay attention to. First up, the governor of Kentucky has signed a bill to legalize marijuana medicinally, making the state the 38th in the U.S. to enact the reform, which goes into effect in 2025. A quote from the bill's sponsor, which is a Republican, Stephen West, said, One of the prime reasons I sponsored this bill and moved it along is addiction. Other states that have adopted this have seen not only a 20 to 30% reduction in opioid use, but also a 20 or 30% reduction in drug addiction. Kentucky has been one of the leading hemp states initially passing legislation that would soon help pave the way for federal hemp legislation. But I'll be curious to see how the medical marijuana program gets established alongside the state's hemp program, considering you can now get psychoactive cannabinoids derived from hemp. The second piece of news is the NBA, National Basketball Association, is reportedly removing marijuana from its list of banned substances and will no longer drug test players as part of a new seven-year collective bargaining agreement. This latest action from the NBA comes as the national discussion around cannabis testing policies for athletes continues to unfold, an issue that made international headlines following the suspension of the U.S. runner Shikari Richardson from participating in the Olympics over a positive THC test. This is clearly an ongoing conversation as cannabis legalization opens up and these major sports leagues weigh the pros and cons of their limiting policies, ultimately impacting their athletes. And I want to remind you as well, the MLB is one of the most progressive professional sports leagues when it comes to cannabis policy. They recently signed a CBD company to serve as the league's first ever cannabis sponsor, which plans to promote the business at the upcoming World Series. So be on the lookout for that as well. The third piece of news is recreational cannabis consumers bought over 300 million in pot in New Mexico since sales without a prescription were legalized a year ago, meaning their recreational market opened up April 1st, 2022. This was according to the State Cannabis Control Division. And again, New Mexico legalized recreational marijuana on April 1st, 2022, which brought sales to the doorstep of Texas. Hello, the largest prohibition state. Yes, right here. That's right. That's us. And further legalization efforts actually stumbled last month as voters in Oklahoma rejected a ballot measure that would have made the state the 22nd to legalize recreational marijuana. So kind of what does that say? Oklahoma did not move forward with recreation this session. I thought that was interesting because of obviously how open their medical marijuana program is. But y'all know we've talked about Oklahoma before. It's kind of like a weird state how they even got medical marijuana legalized. But enough with that. Texas is in its 80th legislative session and we're seeing our medical marijuana program teacup going for more access. But with a month left until session ends, it's pretty unclear where things will end up. And that is all I know for now. For sure, more to come. So to introduce you now to today's guest, I first came across Miyabi Shields when I was scrolling through social media. I was immediately entranced by the sheer amount of knowledge being dropped and the quippy use of cannabinoid compound structures. And I was like, wait, this is amazing and I need to know more. Somebody is speaking about cannabis from a scientific perspective who also understands education. So Miyabi has a PhD in endocannabinoid pharmacology from Northeastern University, which led to a three-year stint as the co-founder and chief science officer of Real Isolates, a research organization for validating and further investigating the relationship between patient-reported experiences and the chemodiversity of natural products, mainly hemp cannabis, studying the unique chemistry of cannabis smoke. In 2021, Miyabi began using their personal social media page to share knowledge of pharmacology and destigmatize natural products and recently launched Project Chronic to share a scientist's perspective on how to safely dose. This is a really enlightening conversation. I talk very openly about 
what I know and also the limitations that I have. I do not have a background in in science, especially obviously not a PhD. And so it was really fun for me to hear Miyabi's perspective. And we discuss what led Miyabi on this path and what initially attracted them to the specific study of the endocannabinoid system and what it's been like navigating cannabis from a scientific perspective as it relates to our health and well-being. So a really cool episode. I can't wait for you guys to hear it. So without further ado, join me in lining one up and let's welcome Miyabi to the show. I'm Miyabi Shields, and I have my PhD in pharmaceutical sciences. I studied the drug discovery and like the structural biochemistry. So this is how the actual molecules that are in our drugs interact with the endocannabinoid system, which is the system in the brain that interacts with cannabis. And I got on that route of research and in life because cannabis saved my life more than once and will potentially just continue to keep saving my life because it's part of my quality of life. It's part of my medicine. It is without a doubt the biggest component and shift that happened in my life. And I'm really passionate about educating other people specifically for the medical uses of cannabis, which I think are pretty large, but can be split up into mental health, GI, chronic pain. Those three things kind of contribute to a lot of other stuff like anxiety and sleep disorders and There's a huge overlap between all three of those. Uh, So that is something that, you know, I've been really passionate about. I spent eight years researching the endocannabinoid system and the eicosanoid system, which is downstream in academia. So that's at research universities. And then after I finished my PhD, I was in the cannabis industry. I did a little bit of demographics research on medical patients. Why do medical patients use cannabis? And what are they like weaning themselves off of their prescriptions, et cetera, et cetera. And then I co-founded a research startup called Real Isolates. And we studied the rare cannabinoids that are present, high heat transformations, so smoking. And anyone who follows my content knows that I prefer smoking, which is something that I'm not necessarily advocating for that others do. I am just advocating that some of us do receive additional medicinal benefits or a different medicinal profile from it. And so we shouldn't study it. So that was what I was doing in the industry. And recently, as of the last few months, I have stepped down and I've shifted my focus. I've actually changed sort of what I think about cannabis as medicine in terms of growing the plant and treating the medicine something that is more a community healing vector and something that has a spiritual component in it for me. It's something that I didn't really explore for a long time in terms of like the pharmaceutical aspect because I was just so obsessed with the science. And the science is amazing and the science is very, very cool. And I love it. And I still planning on researching. I'm just planning on researching things in a little bit of a different manner from now on because I'm going to focus a little bit more on the healing and a little less on the numbers and a little bit more on my community and the types of medicine that I can or can't create. You said so many important things that I'm trying to think, what is the next best question to ask you? The thing that comes to mind first, I think, which I'll start with your background, especially coming from academia and specifically studying the endocannabinoid system. I'm sure you saw by the time this episode airs that Raphael Mashulam, who is the founder of discovering, I shouldn't say founder, that was a weird word. I'm like thinking of entrepreneurs, but the the scientists who discovered he was he did found he did found at least my subsector of molecular pharmacology for cannabinoids because he identified okay so fair term then okay so we're gonna mm-hmm. like add it back in edit it back in <laughs> founder discovered established the endocannabinoid system obviously he's in Israel or was I should say in Israel Israel seems to be very much on the forefront of establishing this in an academic way, if that's a fair way to phrase it. The way I'm thinking of it is in America, I can't imagine you can go get a degree in cannabis eight years ago. Maybe I'm wrong. I would just love to learn your journey of what was that? like? What did you get a degree in? Was it specifically in a type of, and this is my non-science background showing, my listeners know I'm a marketer, Science was like the barely had to take past, you know, college class that I had to do. So I understand that there are subsets that you're learning. So like the endocannabinoid system is like a component of what you're studying, but I'm sure that's not like what your degree is in, right? And so how do you get from, okay, I want to study science to now I'm studying and I'm learning all about the endocannabinoid system and therefore cannabinoids. Like, is that accessible? I think now today you're seeing more universities actually introduce 
helpful programming that is more of a, a pathway or coursework for people to be studying this more in depth. But like, were you a pioneer? Were there other people that you, you know, were like learning from in your school? Or were you like, hey, I really want to study this. Like teacher, teach me more about that. Like maybe it was like a, a text in a book you were reading and then you expanded on it. Like, I just want to understand what your experience was going from using cannabis, wanting to study it more from an academic perspective to then actually going to school and finding the teachers, the resources, the classes, the curriculum that supported this education that you were getting, which now you're using to educate us on. So that's a really fair question because it is complicated. And one of the reasons why other countries like Israel or Switzerland and other European countries in general, just not American, have or like Canadian, Spanish, et cetera, you know, Australian, there's there are different laws for what we can and can't study. And it is more difficult to study cannabis. It still is more difficult to study cannabis, high THC specifically in the United States, because it is schedule one, which means that there's no medical value. And actually, it's so that schedule one in general doesn't make any sense to me because I personally believe that nothing is without some form of medical value. So to say nothing is just absolutely like it just doesn't make any sense. Plus, like historically, if you look at molecules we put in the schedule one, they're the most therapeutic molecules that we've ever found as a history of humanity. So it's almost like a joke category to me. But then it's like not a joke. It's one of those like tragic things that you're like, if you think about it too much, you stop laughing and you're like, whoa, we have really strayed from what we know be true about our relationship with the earth and et cetera. But okay, 100%. so so my BS, I, I have my first degree was from UC Davis. It was in biochemistry and molecular biology. And so that's a very general like degree of studying. You know, I went one of the things I was always I really, really loved, but was figuring out what I wanted to do in research was organic chemistry. I've always loved organic chemistry, but I don't particularly like synthetic organic chemistry. And I've always been really fascinated by drugs. So I started my first research project in any lab happened at the same time that I was taking a biochemistry lab course. And so it was this really interesting thing where, you know, I was researching all of the specific like downstream pathways in the endocannabinoid system for it's called the eicosanoid system or arachidonic acid. And actually like Advil or ibuprofen, Aleve, naproxen, those work on the COX enzymes and those prostaglandins, if you've heard of the word prostaglandins, those are part of the arachidonic acid cascade. So they're actually downstream of the endocannabinoid system. And that was where my research started. And I got, you know, it was one of those things where the stars aligned for me to get that volunteer position. And just I studied under Dr. Arzu Ulu, and she was critical to me continuing being a scientist the way that she helped me learn how to actually do research in a lab. And there's this, um, I'll try to tell a story quickly because it's like a long story, but I went to an agricultural college. <laughs> UC Davis is an ag school. And there was a horse that had really, really severe laminitis, which is the inflammation of the horse hoof, like it's their nail. And the ho- the hoof was separated from the bone. And so the horse was going to die because her name was Hulahala. And she was going to die because they had her maxed out on all of the other medications that her hoof was, she couldn't stand and whatever. So they said, you know, you have an anti-inflammatory. Do you think that would help? Like, is it possible to try it? And so I remember it was 1770. The molecule was 1770. And, you know, the next day, Hulahala was standing up and was walking around. And it was just the addition of this new molecule. And that changed my life completely to see that happen. And in terms of then getting my PhD, my PhD is in the endocannabinoid system. So I did actually hyper, hyper, hyper focus for six years on entirely just the system in the brain that interacts with cannabis. But I probably only was able to say cannabis like five times in those six years total, because you essentially say, I study the endocannabinoid system, the system best known in the brain to interact with cannabis. But then the rest of your research is talking about synthetics or like new pharmaceuticals and new targets. So I specifically studied the enzymes. I worked with the receptors and the binding proteins also, but I worked a ton more with the enzymes. And so I was really focused on what do these enzymes do in our brain and what is the therapeutic potential for turning them off? And it did lead to some sort of crises about like in the middle of my PhD when I was like, I'm getting a PhD in pharmaceuticals and yet I do not believe that that's the right way to be going about human health. And then I was like, what am I doing? But, you know, realistically, the level of research that I wanted to do was really expensive. 
I'm super grateful for the experience that I had in pharmaceutical sciences because I understand the drug discovery pipeline now. I mean, I I worked it. I was I was in my first research was animal model research and downstream, like also preclinical. But then my PhD was in target discovery, which is even before that, before it gets into the animals. And so, you know, it really gave me true understanding of the pathway that it takes for us to get new drugs to the market, for us to discover new pharmaceuticals. And it built the context for me to understand cannabis within the context of our more Western health systems approach to using drugs as medicine. And yeah, I'm, I'm very grateful for the experience, but it definitely led to like a crisis of sorts when I realized that wasn't the right thing. And then, you know, fortunately, me, I'm living through a time like I find us that we are all living in a time where it's very fortunate to be seeing accessibility for cannabis going up. And we should not be you know, complacent about it because there are places around the world where it's still not legal. There are still many states where people lack access. And that means that they have lesser quality medicine and it's still a growing problem. So I think that I'm very fortunate. I think we're really fortunate and I'm excited about it. But I'm also aware that, you know, we still have a long way to go. Yeah, that's really cool, though, because like you were stating, it's not like you can necessarily because from my understanding a PhD, you're picking what you're studying like at that level. And so it's not so much that there's a course or a class or a teacher that's explicitly supporting it. It's you saying, hey, this is what I've learned in all these other steps of you know schooling that I've taken now at this level of a PhD. I want to study this further. So, is so that usually, accurate? yeah, usually I picked my mentor. So usually okay. you pick like your research topic and it usually has something to do with who your men- your direct mentor in the lab is. And so actually my mentor is Dr. Alexandros Makrianis. He started researching the cannabinoids in the early 80s, late 70s, early 80s. He was researching them before we even knew we had receptors. And he designed most of the major synthetic research molecules that we use to study the cannabinoids or that we have been. So if you've ever read you know, scientific papers, they usually use controls. And those controls sometimes will be an AM number or an MAK number. And the AM is Alexandros Makarianis and the MAK is for Mac Scientific. And so I wanted to study under him because his lab had the capabilities of looking at every single piece of the endocannabinoid system. I had a really interesting intersection between academia and the industry for that reason, because Alex is very experienced in drug discovery in academia, but also in industrial at like in the pipeline of getting drugs past the patent office, et cetera, et cetera. So I chose him because his lab specialized in the endocannabinoid system and he had been specializing in it for, you know, since before I was born. And it was it's it's something people ask me about a lot, like how sort of like how did it happen? And I think it's a combination of just a lot of things coming like and lining up and being in the right place at the right time, I suppose. But it's also about like seeking and following the things that you really want to do. And for getting a PhD, looking at the lab and looking at the place that you want to study under, look at the publications that they've done and the type of and scale of of research. And then also funding, because funding is unfortunately just a huge part of whether or not science continues to go on. And I mean, that's that's a little political thing that most people who are outside of academia don't really understand is just how tight the funding can be and how how much the funding can drive the research. And like, you know, we found out, I think it was just this year, right, that a bunch of the Alzheimer's studies were forged, or at least that they were altered intentionally. And if you don't think that that had something to do with the funding and the responsibility and everything, you know, it's 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 very cutthroat. It's a very, very competitive competitive situation. So I think I always encourage people who are wanting to do cannabis research that you should like you want to find a lab that is publishing papers that you like. And I would ask them. I also feel like I have my PhD, so I can't be that hypocritical, but I should have thought about it more. I say it all the time. I definitely should have thought about it more before I got my PhD, before I just like went into it. You know, I just went straight out of undergrad. Like, like I'm already in the system. Let me just keep going. Yeah, it was more that I was positive I wanted to be a research professor. I was so I mean, I mean, I'm neurodivergent, so I only foresee one route at a time of things. So it was like, you know, my brain was like, tunnel vision. Like, yeah, it's like, what am I going to do? I'm loving researching this. I'm obsessed with it. I'm just going to continue this obsession. And then after that, I'll stay in academia. I'll become a research professor. I'll get tenure track. And, you know, that has been the standard pipeline for a lot of a lot of neurodivergent adults, for sure. I mean, scientists are full of them. But, you know, 
that's a standard pipeline. So I really wanted to do that. And then, you know, now I think academia and higher education is like a system of oppression. So it's, it's remarkable going off your comment, too, about obviously the Alzheimer's research that's been kind of surfacing recently and just funding in general. And then you're talking about synthetics and obviously your background with pharmaceuticals and also the term cannabis as medicine. So my brain is kind of jumping to a jumble of words that I'm going to now zomit out. So let's see if you can (laughs) keep up with me. So in Texas, we sell a lot of what people would quote unquote call a synthetic cannabinoid. I am not a scientist, but like I mentioned before we started recording, by what I do as a business owner, as an advocate, as this podcast host, I am very studious and I like to pay attention, I like to educate myself. And I have kind of come to the reality that, yes, there are synthetic cannabinoids on the market, but there's also synthesis that gets done. And then even further than that, there's biosynthesis. And so there are certain cannabinoids that are naturally occurring versus certain cannabinoids that are true synthetics or trying to separate out the you know, I think Delta 8, and I love your opinion, obviously, is on the fringe of is that a naturally occurring cannabinoid and, you know, trace amounts that we're now creating through synthesis that has the potential to be a synthetic compared to a, you know, full HHC or even some of these random cannabinoid strings that I'm seeing lately, like a THCJD or obviously THCO. The DEA just came out and was like, whoa, that's a true synthetic, not naturally occurring. It's Also interesting, I think we as an industry have perhaps maybe done ourselves a disservice calling cannabis medicine. We don't want pharmaceuticals to be involved, but yet constantly are referring to it as medicine. So now you have the pharmaceutical industry also encouraging on some of these languages. It's just, it's getting very murky. And I would just love your hot take on what's true, what's like actually really radical about it, what is kind of like a path forward, because I just see things kind of converging. You know, you have epidiolects, there's, I forget the THC version of the... Marinol. Marinol, that's it, thank you. Or drobinol. Drobinol, I think, and marinol, yes. So you have those, which are synthetics, or they're synthesized. I've taken marinol before, it was awful. You're like, not good. Don't recommend. It's going to pass on that. Yeah. But it's just, we find ourselves in this very weird, like, we don't want it to be called medicine, but we're actually referring to it as medical marijuana. It is obviously medicinal. I'm not discrediting that it's medicinal, but when you start introducing the word medicine and pharmaceuticals, and so the summation of the point is operating in Texas, operating in hemp, we definitely play and blur that line of synthetic and synthesis. I think a lot of people externally looking at our industry are like, especially from regulated markets, they're like, that's not the plant. And I'm like, no, but you wanted it to be called a medicine. And this is a pharmaceutical practice. You've studied it, obviously. Like there is some legitimacy to it. I mean, you were mentioning actual drugs previously. A, a reference I use is, is aspirin. It's no longer made from actually the willow tree. It is a chemically created cannabinoid, the chemically created compound which now you're seeing that application happen to cannabis. So that was a lot. I'm just curious what is coming to mind, your thoughts around that. Is it right? Is it wrong? Where does it go? Who regulates it? Is that even, you know, something that we should be caring about? And is it maybe safe for us to be consuming these? I think we should care about it. I mean, I definitely think that we should care about it because it's there. It's out there. People have access and it's it's happening. The reasons why it's happening, I mean, whether it's right or not is something I don't really necessarily want to weigh into because there's no market for it in the regulated markets. Like if you're in a state that has legal adult use, then there's no market. And so, okay, but I'll interject. CBN is made chemically. The majority of CBN on the marketplace is made chemically. And I know that Wana and Wild and Chiba and all those brands that are regulated brands are putting CBN in their products. And that CBN is not naturally occurring. Right. And it doesn't have to be. It could be made in a more natural process, but that's a whole nother topic. But it's like a whole nother conversation. Well, um, so let's talk about like going back to like synthetic, biosynthetic, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So yes. biosynthetic is something that's made by a living creature. So technically, even the ones that are created by yeast, because there are now like yeast and other, I think, I think there's been one other microbe that's been tested that has been able to produce cannabinoids. So that would be something that's biosynthetic. But usually when people are talking about, they're talking about isolates and they're talking about isolates that were like harvested from massive, massive amounts of hemp. So a lot of times big extraction companies that make CBD isolate will just have a throughput of like thousands and thousands of pounds per day. And so with that throughput of the flower, they're getting a lot of CBD isolate. 
but they're also going to collect a lot of the other rare cannabinoids just in their columns. It's something that they do as they separate it. And so then you get these other rare cannabinoids and these would be biosynthetics. So like CBG isolate is an example of one that I'm fairly certain is biosynthetic. CBGA, CBDA, the ones that are naturally occurring in the plant, those would be biosynthetic, but they can be isolated, right? And then in terms of full synthetic, like it's complicated, like you said, because do you consider an intentional transformation synthesis? It depends. I mean, it depends on the chemistry you're talking about. You use conditions, right? Like acid, base, heat, et cetera, catalysts and pressure. And you use these conditions to change the shape of the molecule and then you can repurify it. Now, the question of whether or not it's safe is a complicated one. On one hand, cannabinoids are extremely safe just in general. On the other hand, there really isn't a lot of information on a lot of these newer, more rare cannabinoids that are being created because they just haven't been available. Yeah. Yeah. And then not only have they not been available, but to study them is difficult because they're considered THC analogs. And a lot of universities take federal grant money and would never you know, risk that if it were to be a problem. I think that there's a problem with regulation because if there is if there's no regulation, then we have an issue because we do have, you know, potential for there to be like residual acidity present. And it depends on how people are getting it right. Are people going to be vaping it, et cetera, et cetera? Like, because if you're vaping it, then you're heating it to a temperature and then inhaling it into your lungs. Then it's it's important to know if there are residual solvents or if there's resi- any sort of residual or any sort of off target activity that was undesirable. So I have a complicated opinion about that, too, though, because I smoke, right? I mean, I I smoke cannabis. I smoke hemp. I smoke blunts. Like, I mean, there is definitely things in that mixture that are not beneficial to me, but I accept the risk for the net benefit. And that's just my personal experience. So it's it's definitely not a nuanced thing where, like, I can just be like, you know, everything is wrong and there are no synthetics. Like, I will say that I haven't actually tried any synthetic problem, like, pro products ever i've never tried a delta a product or an hhc product or a thco product and um you know i don't really have a desire to but that's just me also i have access to the medical plant and i've lived like you know california went medical in 1996 so i was six and then when i moved to massachusetts that was the year that they went medical so or it was the year that they opened like you know and so i've i've lived in states with access and so i don't i don't know I don't know what it's like. I think it's a huge barrier to health equity. And I think that the problem is clearly the access to cannabis. But, you know, like you mentioned, CBN, I also think the ability to make these isolates and then really formulate it, it's useful. And some people want that. Not not everyone. Like, right. And it's it's all about options. I, I also, you know, I think we touched on this earlier before we started recording too, you know, like I don't demonize anything like pharmaceuticals are not for me, but that doesn't mean that someone else wouldn't want a more pharmaceutical approach and that really it's all about having options and that they should be viewed with the right amount of validity. I mean, that's my my thing with cannabis and, and psychedelics is that the natural forms, the natural plants and the natural fungi are undervalued in comparison to what would be a pharmaceutical preparation. So I find that to be a problem just because undervalued, but I don't think that it's a problem that they're options to one another. One of them doesn't have to be better than the other, except that maybe one of them, some one person likes better. It's, you know, we're not we're not angry at our friends if we don't like the same type of ice cream. Absolutely. And, I, and that answer is not that, again, I agree with you. It's not that it's right or wrong necessarily. That was maybe a bad way to frame it. But I do think that there has been that sentiment just externally in the industry, like, oh, if it's not explicitly from the plant, it must be wrong. And then really trying to, I'm just like such a, in the middle kind of ground type of person where I'm like, hey, let's just kind of, you know, it might not be right for me, but it might be right for you. And like, I want you to have that access. Let's understand it. And that's what you said is exactly in line with what I've kind of come to the assumption and realization of, again, without any real scientific background, just talking to a lot uh, more smarter people like yourself who have studied this in different degrees or have come from different sides of the conversation to kind of net out this is the reality. And now how do you kind of move forward with it? And so that's kind of the journey that I've been on. We actually did a panel at South by I had two PhD chemists and then one lab operator. We talked on the future of chemically derived cannabinoids. So it's a little bit of a, a topic that I like to bring up because I think that it is going to impact our industry more than people are paying attention to right now. 
And so just trying to watch where it ends up is really important and fascinating for me, especially being in a state like Texas, where we do not have access to the full plant, but you are seeing the inflation, excitement, just rapid introduction of these minor rare cannabinoids often made in the synthesis process, you know, kind of evolving very quickly, like I said. So I was just curious. So that was was helpful. I, I also just want to emphasize that I don't really think that it is any person's place to say that any other thing is necessarily wrong until there's some sort of harm. Like yeah. if there's a if there's a real harm to our communities, and I think that if there is the biggest harm to our community right now, if there would be one that I would point out for cannabis in general, is our insistence on THC percentage as something that we should be focusing on as selling quality. That's right. It's a huge issue. It's a growing issue. And if anything, it's the biggest risk factor to anyone who's being introduced to cannabis. It's the biggest risk factor for like developing negative use patterns with cannabis or having negative side effects with cannabis. It's all linked to that THC percentage. So I do not understand. I mean, I I do not understand if I look at something and someone tells me that it's 30 something percent THC, I think that that flower is going to be dry and crusty, have no water in it and probably be a lower quality medicine. And not to say that that's true of everything that's 31 percent, because I'm not throwing shade at anyone specifically. I haven't smoked your weed, so I don't know. But in general, I think my personal sweet saw is somewhere more along the 14 percent, even lower, you know, like. It's, it's it's a problem, like you said. I mean, it's so when so many threads like start unraveling, it's it's the I was just reading a news article on lab shopping and mm-hmm. obviously THC inflation, and then you read some of the consumer data and you talk to consumers. And anecdotally, they're like, "Why buy the highest THC?" Duh. And it's like, "But why do you need that?" And then you look at the weed from whatever that uh you know they always talk about the high times in the 1970s versus mm-hmm. high times now. It's like we're shitting on that weed, but that was pretty decent weed. Now, what is the weed we have? I'm not shitting on it. It's just we're we're evolving and advancing. And what is that THC percentage doing to us then as a human who's never really pushed into those limits, which is then where I get even more weirded out with. I was flipping through a catalog the other day and it was a, I'm jumbling it, but it was to the effect of HHC, Delta 8 and THCJ, THJD, which I still don't know what TH. I've never heard of that one. Yeah, I'm going to have to look that one up. Quick break to say thank you to Restart CBD for sponsoring this podcast. Restart CBD is a brand my sisters and I founded in our hometown in Austin, Texas. We operate a retail location as well as an e-commerce store, and you can browse our wide range of CBD products at restartcbd.com. Again, thank you to Restart for allowing me the time and resources to put on To Be Blunt. I hope you'll check them out for your CBD needs. Let's go back to the episode. And it was all three together in a vape. And so to your point, yes, maybe the cannabinoids independently are fine, but maybe you shouldn't vape it or vape it at that percentage or that high THC. And so when you add them all together, it's like, what is it? What are people inhaling? What are yeah, they in like, their bodies? I, I personally like probably wouldn't, not probably, I wouldn't try that, right? I mean, and it's not like I would recommend that other people try that, but technically, do I believe that people should be free to try it and would additional restriction upon it create problems? I, I don't know that that's true either, because like, why do we want more restriction upon it? Like, if anything, your solution is to increase adult use and make that accessible. And yes. then it ends up sorting itself, it ends up sorting itself out. It does. And I think that's what places like Texas are aspiring to see is more clarity on what we have access to versus kind of like the nebulous black hole. It's just I feel like every day there's a new product that's getting introduced. I'm like, what the fuck cannabinoid is that? I've never heard of that. So yeah, it's like the classic, this is like the classic issue where by by making something illegal, you're making it more dangerous. It's a classic, classic effect of that. It's, It's similarly with cannabis and what we were talking about with THC. It's about the lack of education and telling people just don't do any drugs, don't do anything. And then right. we have no education about anything. And many people in America are alcoholics. Many people have binge alcoholic behavior, especially right when they leave school, like especially in colleges. I was actually part of like a study when I was at UC Davis, I was a student athlete. So they were studying student athlete binge cultures because we weren't allowed to drink 72 hours before our competitions, which meant that when you're in season, 
if you compete in tournaments on the weekend, which normally you do, it means that the only days that you can go out are Monday and Tuesday, which meant that like we coincided with the football season, the tennis season, and that like teams were partying together in a binge fashion on Mondays and Tuesdays, right? And like, it's fascinating how different the culture can be. And, you know, American culture is complicated, disparate, mosaic. Like, you're in Texas, I'm in Massachusetts. Like, these are such different, different locations on in the United States, because it's huge, but also just culturally. And this is just another classic example where it's like you're trying to do the right thing, but by making it more restrictive, it's actually creating a more dangerous alternative. And the solution just looks unattractive because it's like swallowing your pride, admitting that you're wrong. And, you know, no, that's exactly what we're dealing with right now. We're in session. So it's going to be interesting to see how things net out in the next couple of months. But obviously we're talking about education. I appreciate all that science commentary. I think that is obviously your background and and what I wanted to just kind of, you know, get a better picture from for me for this conversation. But now kind of taking your science discussion from an educational perspective, your content is really what first put you on my radar. Your, you know, short, real TikTok style videos, you're taking cannabinoid compounds and you're very creative. I think earlier you were talking about majoring your PhD in the endocannabinoid system and really not being able to talk about actually cannabis as frequently. And that made me think of how you have eloquently navigated around censorship, which I know you're not a stranger to. And so I wanted to just kind of start talking about that stuff because your content is so helpful in taking these really complex things like the endocannabinoid system, which I love bringing up to customers who come in. They're like, well, what's a cannabinoid? And I'm like, did you know that you actually have an endocannabinoid system? And they're like, whoa, I had no idea. I'm like, yeah, whether you consume or not, it's in your body. And so I just appreciate that conversation, you know, point that you kind of like to bring from your background, the science, the, the chemistry, the the compounds themselves, the cannabinoids, and just talk about like, how did you get started creating that content? Like, what was it like where you were, these are these are topics people should be talking about. And I know so much, like, let me get a microphone. Like, what was that progression for you to like, put yourself out there on social media to be talking about these things? Obviously, you're passionate about it. I'm just curious, as a content creator myself, like, how did you start to bridge that gap to actually make the content? It was really an accident. I think. Great. Well, so I definitely, you know, I was thinking about it for a while and I was like, I do want to do some sort of advocacy. And, you know, mental health and cannabis is my advocacy platform, neurodiversity and cannabis. And it's a complicated one. People don't like to talk about it because it's taboo and because cannabis can be like, how about this? Neurodivergent people can be more vulnerable to the negative effects of cannabis. We do know that to be true, but we also know that like huge percentage of cannabis users are using for mental health and for things that are affected by neurodiversity. So I really wanted to start doing advocacy around that. And before actually like April 2021, I had just completely wiped all of my socials. I like have anything. And I I spent a couple of years just completely, you know, without anything and like living more anonymously and just, you know, having a different having a different experience about what, you know, what is community and what are you doing? And I was really, you know, I love teaching. I've always loved teaching, but really when I started my profile again, I was like, you know, I think I'll try and be honest. Like I, I was giving a talk at ACS, the American Chemical Society's Cannabis Subdivision, run by Dr. Nigam Aurora and Dr. Amber Wise, two like just awesome people. (laughs) They're really, really cool people in my life. Nigam and I worked together in Massachusetts for a little bit. And then I really like Amber a lot. She's like, she specialized in molecular dynamics of membranes at like, you know, a long time ago, I think it was in her postdoc or PhD. And so I was giving a talk and I was going to talk about CBD and mental health specifically. And I was like all nervous about it being like, okay, I think I'm going to say it. I think I'm going to say that I use CBD for my mental health, you know, and I was like all nervous about it when it's like, okay, who cares if you use CBD? It's sold at Whole Foods, like no one cares. But I still had that like, you know, stigma and fear. And, you know, changed everything to start, you know, making it to start sort of putting it out there and talking about it in a very real way that was authentic because it doesn't make you lesser and it's something that's important. And in terms of disability, you know, my wife and I are both neurodiversity advocates and 
the word disability is not a negative thing. It's something they want to be more acceptable. So I then need to live in the light of of that as well. And I need to work on my internalized ableism and I need to do all of that. So I was making this education content and I was I was figuring out like, okay, what should I make that like is helpful? I want to teach people like what what am I going to do? And I've always loved teaching. I've always loved teaching in a bar environment. That's that would be what I'd say is like my favorite environment or a living room. A living room would be another one, but a relaxed social environment where people can ask a lot of questions and, you know, really get a little bit of a cool idea and then follow up with it. It's always been my favorite thing. And but then I, I had I had one THC molecule like display. I didn't I didn't even have a whole set. I just had just like one molecule and I I was like, oh, maybe I'll make a short video. So I made it and I posted on Instagram. My wife Lane was like, oh, you should post that on TikTok too. And I was like, ah, I'm a little old for that, you know, because I'm like, you know, a middle of the line millennial. So I was like, I was like, all right, I guess so, whatever, you know. And then from there, it just kind of like super exploded. And I think people really like the visual aspect of seeing the molecule. And that was actually, you know, it's funny, it's like just full circle, but it's it's what got me in the beginning. He's so interested in drug discovery and pharmacology is just how incredible it is that a really small change in that molecular structure will have just a huge change in how you feel. And it's because of how they interact with each of us. It's it's very complicated. I mean, we're still we're still in the very beginnings of understanding it. So, you know, then it sort of evolved since then. And I really grateful that so many people are interested because it like restores my faith in that we can change something about this and that there's, you know, more than enough people out there who are valuing the things in cannabis and in the plant and in the medicine that like we should value or that we could preserve to then improve the quality of life for other people around us, improve our community health. And I think that I think I've just been overwhelmed by all of it because I never really expected to tell my story. It's always been something of a shameful. It's always been something of more of like a shameful thing from my past. And I've been told by mentors not to talk about it as well, like professionally, just in a professional sense. And I'm not trying to say anything negative about those mentors. They were they were looking out for me, right? I mean, they were like, if you want to get a tenure track academic position or if you want to climb the ladder in a pharmaceutical company, no one can think that you're crazy. Like you have to hold that together and mask it the way that so many of us do, right? So it's just because I'm living like so far outside the norm of regular, I'm regular is the wrong way, but I'm pretty far outside the average. So I I think that's the only reason. Well, like you said too, you're just trying to be authentic and do things that are natural to you. And I think what I've just observed is you really humanize the molecular structure of these cannabinoids, which people don't really realize. Again, I think it plays back into the endocannabinoid system. I use a really bad analogy with customers. I I distill it down to think of it as, you know, a cannabinoid is a square peg and the endocannabinoid system is a square hole and functions in your body because it was made to fit there. And people can start to understand that, right? When you can give them these tangible, like, oh, it functions like that or it's in my body. And so I think when you show people the structure, they can see what it looks like. It makes it maybe less scary. And it also introduces them to the beautiful science and chemistry side of it, which is obviously how it all functions. I think another thing that you do, which I wanted to kind of learn a little bit more about is you've done a really great job of taking other things. So chocolate or the hibiscus flower, I saw your peppermint video and applying the chemistry of those things to cannabis. How do you Put them together. I mean, like, I'm sure your brain is just swirling with so many ideas, especially with how much and how long you've studied the endocannabinoid system. But to me, it seems like constant, you know, you have to be constantly researching things. So I just, I think it's so beautiful how you take, again, these everyday things that people are very familiar with and you can apply it, whether it's highlighting a terpene or similarity between the two structures that makes people kind of again build that bridge of like oh chocolate i love chocolate and when i eat chocolate i feel great I wonder when i do this cannabis related thing i also feel great so i just wanted to understand more of how that and it came to be to a part of your content because i just think it's so well executed i 
honestly just love cannabis. I'm so obsessed with cannabis. I think it, I have been since I was 15. Like I've been hooked since like the first time that I ever smoked. I was like, this is incredible. I need to understand everything about it. And I think when it comes to the other plans, I'm very much so on a journey back to some of my other interests because before my PhD, I was really, really more interested in looking into secondary metabolites, which so, you know, for people who aren't aware, THC and CBD are secondary metabolites. Those are molecules that the plant makes that are not for reproduction or for growth because things that are for growth or reproduction are primary metabolites and then therefore everything else like so terpenes and cannabinoids, they would be secondary metabolites. And I really wanted to do my PhD on secondary metabolites of cannabis I, I said plants when I was asking the, as asking all the professors, but I went around UC Davis. I went to an ag school and I, my professor that I was working in his lab at the time, he said, you know, why don't you go speak to a couple of these, like go speak, go to the greenhouse, go ask them, knock on doors, go knock on all the doors and anyone that you can ask to talk to them, tell them what you want to do. And he's, he was like, go see. Like, see if you want to do that research, you know? And I, I did that. I went and knocked all the doors. I had some good conversations. But for the most part, when I told all of them that I wanted to study the molecular structure of the cannabinoids and the endocannabinoid system targets and how they work together, pretty much all of them told me that the only funding I'd be able to get would be in pharmaceutical sciences. And so that is one of the reasons why then I pursued pharmaceutical sciences. And I'm just sort of now re-establishing and re like diving into or having the bandwidth to look more into all of these other natural medicines. And, you know, personally, I have a tie to like my spirituality and my upbringing was pretty complicated, just like religious wise. I was I was raised in like a mixture of like Buddhism and like Hawaiian like folklore or like mythology or like wives tales, you know. And so there's all these things that are just kind of said, you know, this for this for that or an example, bitter, bitter melon tea or gout, you know, and it's and knowledge doesn't come out of thin air. And, and I spent a lot of time intentionally devaluing it just in my own mind when I was in academia, because it just happens. You're training to be a scientist. And so you're learning from the textbooks and you're learning from people who have a very specific mindset about pharmaceuticals and about plants and about medicine. And I think actually earlier, just like I'm thinking this randomly, so I just want to say it so I don't forget it. Earlier, we talked about medicine and how like we want to call it a medicine, but then we don't want that pharmaceutical. Like, what is the problem? And like, I really think our problem is how we as a culture are defining that word medicine. I mean, I think that it's not necessarily related to cannabis. It's us. Like, we are not valuing medicine for what it is and what it should be, which is powerful tool for your life but your lifestyle and something that like evolves and changes and isn't like a band-aid or a curative thing it's it's more about it it's a helpful thing maybe will help you hopefully it helps you you know and like yeah i think that the other plants are definitely a part of it and there's something that i i spent a lot of time sort of distancing myself from just mentally because i was so you know narrowly focused on pharmaceutical part. So I'm super excited about that now. I've, I mean, I don't even know how many plants we started at the farm. Thousands. <laughs> That's like, I mean, I'm so excited to see what they look like when they're grown too. Yeah, like some of them are cool. We have, we have wormwood. Wormwood smells so good. Like I'm excited about that. Like I want to do a, I want to do a wormwood rosemary tincture and then maybe do cannabis terps. I haven't decided yet, but I'm probably going to just get like an extractor for hydrosols and essential oils and then, you know, go from there and mix them together and try them on myself and see what comes of it, you know? No, it's a very beautiful, I know it's complex and it certainly isn't like explicit by any means, but it's really blending all of your life experiences into you being able to just be this expression of what you're learning, what you're passionate about, what happening in the industry, bringing consumers along, bringing the industry along. I was just noticing, you know, we have a lot of mutual like peers and friends in the industry. And it's like, I love that we're all representing, you know, different parts of the United States that may be closer than others. And it's like, we're all kind of learning. I think that's the cool thing about cannabis. As much as there is science historically about these cannabinoids and the endocannabinoid system, I think the application of it is still pretty open for, you know, interpretation and definition. And so I think it's by us having these conversations and the content we're making and bringing consumers along and really just learning as we're going, which is a really beautiful thing to me. Okay, like final question I had for you. 
that I thought also was really interesting. You share protocols on your website. I don't know if you're still actively doing that, but I thought that that was a really, I don't think like neat or cool is the right, you know, like words to use. Okay. But as a, I appreciate that. But as a <laughs> cannabis person who uses her body as the anecdote for answering customer questions, you know, they come in and they're like, I was reading the one about CBD isolate specifically for your wife and you're obviously sharing your own experience in there, but you were going from 50 milligrams of CBD to 100 milligrams to 500 milligrams. And again, just reflecting on conversations that I have with our customers, when you sell products, you know, the market kind of sets a standard price, how much the cannabinoids are worth. We don't really know what dosing is, I think, effectively. I think regulation and legislation dictates that. And I think the THC conversation from earlier obviously influences that as well. We want higher THC, but then the packages are only sold in most states, right? You know, 100 milligrams, 10 milligram pieces, maybe they're five, maybe they're two and a half milligrams, but relatively THC has different dosing, not relatively, explicitly THC has different dosing than CBD, but how you navigate it, I think, is is a very different web, right? How we navigate it as consumers. And so, again, I have customers come in and they're, well, I'm experiencing X, Y, or Z and I'm not a doctor. I can't say, hey, explicitly take this much and you're going to reduce your headaches if that's, you know, what they're coming in with. But how do you guide them, right? So I think your protocols is a means to an end of, hey, this is what worked for me or my loved one. This is a great place for you to start. And so I just want to know more about how did that come about? You starting to share that, publish that, also the journey of using yourself as the guinea pig for these doses. And from your experience with your background in science, what are we missing about dosing? Is there a right way to go about dosing? Is there a right right way to go about, guess, how often we dose ourselves depending on the cannabinoid, how we titrate up? Obviously, I know our bioavailability matters. So there's certainly some stuff that's known, but there's, I feel like, so much that's unknown. And so you have customers coming in there saying, oh, well, you know, 100 milligrams seems like a lot. And then I'm reading your post and I'm like, shit, what's 500 milligrams of CBD? Like, I don't know if I've ever taken 500 milligrams, let alone, you know, twice in a day. So just that. I thought it was very interesting and wanted to learn more about it from you. Yeah, I, you know, I decided to start doing it because I... So on one hand, I was scared to do it because it is just a protocol for in general, for most of them are just in general about testing things out. And it's difficult because we're all so different. So, you know, what you were saying about customers coming in, I, I get regularly people asking me questions about like a strain for this or, you know, what should I do? And the reality is none of us are going to be able to tell that person what to do because we are all so different and cannabis may be helpful and there may be a way to find that and to experiment with it. But there wasn't anything out there that I point to that I said, okay, here, this, like, this is something that gives you information that empowers you to make up your own mind about it, basically. So that's the goal with the protocols is to put out there, because the other thing too, is that that is something that I feel like came from my background, the ability to write it up that way and also look at it that way as a dosing. I didn't look at it like that until I did my PhD. I mean, you know, I was using medicinally, not really. I you know, it felt like not, not in the keeping same track way. of it and knowing like right. how frequently. Yeah. Right. And like now I have a, now I keep track of it pretty. I'm pretty aware. Like I know that almost all of my joints are about half a gram, like almost all of them. And then you mark down what they are, whether or not they have hash in them now, whether or not, you know, all these things that like that you can keep track of once you're intentionally using. And the first step, I think, for a lot of people is getting to that point of being like, okay, I'm going to intentionally use. But then they're like, how do I do it? And if you just give someone a journal and then that journal doesn't really correlate to anything, it's really difficult, I think, for some people to like see any sort of result that they want to see and or like think it's easier to follow like a scaffold and then to branch off and make your own little experiments once you have kind of followed through with something that's very similar. So I'm still working on, I have actually, I released my next protocol, but I want to make an image for it because it's about finding your lowest therapeutic minimum, or it's just about knowing, it's just about knowing what it is, like how to evaluate it. So I want to make like a little flow chart. It's like, take your first hit. Do you feel okay? Yes, no. And then like go there. It's because like, I, I made I wrote it all out and I was reading it and I was confusing myself. So I was 
I was like, I think I need like a flow chart near in this one. But no, I'm I'm thinking like in terms of the protocols and, and where I take them, I've done a lot of personal experimentation. And I think that I've learned a lot from many of my many scientists that I admire have also shared their own personal experimentation. And I think that it has benefited the community overall to be able to be open about it. And so I'm going to agree with that. And I'm also going to go with the confidence and the gratitude and the positivity that, you know, this is helping people and it's giving people access to, at the very least, make their own decisions about what it is they're already doing or not. In terms of the 500 milligrams of CBD, you know, it does have an effect. So epidiolex dosing is very, very high and you you will get negative side effects at that high of a dosing. And then it's also why CBD at really high doses can have negative interactions with other drugs. So, you know, these are all things that like I I want to make sure that we talk about because even though I even though I love cannabis clearly and I am a huge advocate for it, I think that we should always like I think we should always have the context of that. And that's what I was hoping with the protocols that I was able to even put that within there. Like I think somewhere in that migraine one, I explicitly put that down and was like, yeah, this is why you have to wean off of all other medications because it's dangerous. Like yes. You could, or you have to do it with the help of a medical professional, which, you know, hopefully becomes more and more accessible to people. Yeah, I think that is very sound advice. Obviously, like we've been saying, everybody's body is different. And so I think it is helpful, though. I like your framing of calling it like scaffolding parameters, right? It's just saying, hey, here's a way it's been done and have now tested on your own. Because I really don't think we as an industry are really one, exploring it to that um, intentional effect where it's, okay, I'm taking this much. How is this making me feel? Do I have any other medication in my system? Or, okay, I took this much today. Now I'm going to take that much tomorrow and kind of gauging between the two. We need more of that information. So I was just very excited to see that because I feel that I try to capture some of that, especially like interacting with our customers where here's a starting line, but now the, you know, ownership is on you to actually be consistent with taking your dosing. Or if you're not feeling an effect, like obviously people come in and they say, well, this didn't work for me. And I question, well, how much did you take? How often were you taking it? There's so many ways that you can go about it. Um, and so it's certainly not the ends to it all, but it's the beginning, I think, of having more of those conversations and really empowering the community to be confident to explore that. But I really love your point though about the like the lowest dose that can help us feel therapeutic. It's interesting. I was hanging out with a friend. This is a couple, maybe a year or two ago at this point. And of course we were getting high together and great ideas happen in that setting. And he was like, you know what, Shada? I think sometimes we're not overdosing ourselves, but we, we're over consuming and we don't need to, to get the effect that we need. And I am like, you know, putting the ball down. I'm like, son of a gun. I think that's a really valid point. And so I've been wondering just personally and kind of putting it into practice, paying attention to incremental dosing as small as like, what's one milligram do to me versus two milligrams? Okay, now two milligrams versus three milligrams and really trying to build it up to get to some sort of that. Well, did I feel better at three milligrams than I did at six milligrams? Okay, maybe I could do three versus these conventional dosings that were kind of being, again, presented to based on regulation and legislation. And also just because that's the price of the cannabinoid cost and that's how much ends up in a bottle. And yep, now everybody, you know, sells 20 milligrams of CBD. And when you sell a higher strength product, people are like, that's too much. I don't know what to do with that. And so it's just, it's a very fascinating place to be in. And I just think it's really cool what you're doing. So thank you for joining on the podcast. I don't know if there's any final thoughts that we didn't say or that you, you know, are thinking of that you want to end with, but I think what you're doing is phenomenal. I'm excited to continue to support and be a fan of all your content and can't wait to see when that protocol gets released. Yeah, no, thanks for thanks for having me. This has been a great chat. And I, I think that like, if there is any closing like thought that I have along the lines of what you were saying about incrementally doing that is that, you know, when we better understand how these drugs affect us, then we're better able to use them in a responsible manner in a way that's predictable. And I think that it's okay to self-experiment. I also think it's okay to take more. I had a really great conversation that I think it was just last weekend or just last weekend with Dank Duchess. And she said to me, she said, you know, I think that she said, I think sometimes we do need more weed, you know, and 
I'm thinking about, I thought about it the whole train ride home. I thought about it driving home. I was thinking about it a lot because it's true that even though I use it the therapeutic minimum, like let's say Monday through Friday, generally, right? Generally speaking, it's definitely true that I use way more Friday night through like Sunday night, right? And that I think that that's okay too. And it's all about that understanding and that and that balance. And so you building that yourself and educating people so that they can build it for themselves is what I think is hopefully in the future for specifically medical users. But I hope for all users, I think that we should teach children about drugs just in general. Like if children can know that babies come from a vagina and that if they can learn about sex ed and if they have ever understood like taking cough medicine and we can start telling them that like Tide Pods are poison. And then maybe we wouldn't get a bunch of teenagers eating Tide Pods, you know, like it's I think that I'm hoping that we're moving towards that that direction in, in the future for openness of of education and accessibility for that. And so I'm I'm grateful to be on the journey with like a few and it's it's great to have community. Love this episode of To Be Blunt? Be sure to visit theshadatarabi.com slash to be blunt for more ways to connect. New episodes come out on Mondays. And for more behind the scenes, follow along on Instagram at theshadatarabi.com.